Hey there, welcome to Why We Roll, a tabletop role-playing game design podcast. We're your hosts, Chris Pickett, creator of the historical fantasy game Dance Macabre, and Wythe Marshall, creator of the political sci-fi game Stillfleet. Throughout the show, Chris and Wythe hope to amplify new creative voices. We'll chat with different TTRPG designers focusing on the world of indie games. We take a curious approach to game design, working through a range of mechanical and narrative questions that are pertinent to many designers, players, and GMs. We hope to showcase fresh and even challenging ideas about what makes imagination-based games just so powerful. Okay, let's find out why we roll. Hey, what's up, Chris? Hey, what's up, wife? Uh, here we are. You know, one thing that might be useful is having like a teaser convo that we could could use in the stream just as like a super short intro to the show. I guess we could talk about some basic design ideas or philosophies that we both like, that we both yeah. use. Yeah, do you want to, would you want to do, um, not to put you on the spot, but like a quick pitch, like what's going on with your game and, you know, um, some of the design things you've been thinking about, things that have been fun, things that have been... Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so I'm working working on Dance Macabre, which is, a, a, I don't really like the term, but it is a Souls-like tabletop RPG game. It is specifically designed for one player and one GM and uh, uses uh, basically just uh, pretty simple dice pool mechanics to, you know, resolve any kind of check or any kind of action that the player might take that has a risky outcome it is set in it's set in kind of semi-historical 14th century europe france specifically uh right after the great plague after the pestilence death death has abandoned the world so you're living in a time you're working in a time where whenever a person and kind of working this out but possibly animals too but whenever something dies they reanimate within a short period of time Um, but every time they come back they come back corrupted so it has a huge table of uh d666 mutations uh which are called corruptions in the game uh so i think it's 216 different possible permutations of that and the more corrupted that you become the more close you come to kind of losing your soul or mind or however the player or gm conceptualizes it um and that's kind of the way that the that the player can actually die in the game is that you you don't die but you just become another monster in the landscape so yeah i mean that's that's kind of the basic concept of the game um you know the reason that i wanted to do it as one player and one gm is that it's meant to be it's meant to be a, a pretty intimate conversation about death will to live will to death things like that especially in a world where everything has kind of gone topsy-turvy and where things weren't that great to begin with um in terms of like political economy and in terms of um you know access to healthcare and uh all that kind of stuff so it weaves in a lot of kind of catholic eschatology as well as medieval something akin to historicity while also like looking at a really dark setting no i love that um and i I think you could argue i mean realism you know it's a different slightly different meaning in different um areas of cultural studies but you know in game terms we we could talk about simulationism and Mm -hmm. i think while you can simulate anything so you could simulate very unrealistic things and that's kind of interesting 
too, right? Like how would magic shoot from your hands or whatever? Um, we don't know yeah. in real life, but we can simulate it in the the magical physics of of a fantasy game. But I think it's interesting to think about simulating realistic issues like realistic political economic mm-hmm. grind uh as well as alongside and i think that tension is what's interesting about what you're describing like there's a realistic um late medieval england vibe with this kind of magical corrupt dark demonic world where death has abandoned earth and that actually turns out to be sort of horrible um yeah. so i think that that, that tension is super interesting so i i and I, I like thinking about that a lot because i like hard science fiction but i also i'm often accused of designing games that are very uh soft sci-fi um <laughs> to the point of being called melting or goopy um in terms of their their realism but Jesus. i like to think there's an underlying baseline like but most people are just space peasants yeah. realistically modeled and yeah. you know the the fact that yes all this other crazy stuff exists well that's because it's a game and it's fun and why not you know it's in our minds right but. well yeah i mean at the end of the day it's still fantasy right and i mean it, it i think a part of the beauty of role-playing games is that you can do what you want within the world. So I think, you know, building out a, like, if you want to, if you want to have some level of realism or if you want to have simulation of reality or whatever, that like, for me, that comes from, that comes from setting and that comes from the economies that you put into the game, less so how people interact with the world, because, you know, ultimately people are going to do whatever they want to do, whether it's be a a murder hobo or whatever else people do in the game. But I think that's the, but what I'm saying, it, it, it relates to the mechanics in the setting. I think, I think it's maybe where we align to your point about like, well, what is it that we have in, in common here? And why are we doing this podcast? It's like, mm. cause there's a difference. Like when I, like, I, I love some anime, like I grew up with DBZ and, and Neon Genesis Evangelion and stuff, but most anime I find is imp- literally impossible to parse. Like I can't parse the emotions I'm supposed to feel. And it just sort of is a meaningless wash of, of like mm-hmm. screaming and, in color regardless of genre it's it's because everyone is a murder hobo it's like there are no normal people there is no attempt at that realism that grounding mm-hmm. so i think the difference in maybe dance macabre and Soulfleet and games like that is and, I, and i'll say that's a critique i mean i like Merkborg just fine i guess but if everyone is a kind of low level metal halfway to a zombie already murder hobo then again like well where's the tension like everyone is yeah. just a criminal so who cares it's like yeah. the world of cormac mccarthy is interesting because most people aren't that and mm-hmm. the heroes, the anti-heroes are murder hobos in actual, let's say, from somewhere between 1850 and 1950, you know, Texas and Mexico. Yeah. And so the fact that they stand out, and I think that's what I wanted out of Stillfleet is like you work for the company in space, which is basically evil, and you have to somehow figure out what to do. But and you're highly trained and you have all these amazing powers and, and architect, you know, restored high tech weaponry and stuff. Most people mm-hmm. are not that most people are algae farmers. And yeah. I think that makes it much more interesting because if everyone you meet, you have this anime encounter with, it's like, I just, I don't know. I've just never had that. Like it's, it's, it's possible in life to come, for me to come up with analogs of like doing amazing epic stuff, but that would be the extraordinary, the like rare moments. Whereas like yeah. most things, mostly when I go to the bank and like deposit a check, no one jumps out of the bushes and is like, now you've crossed my path finally, <laughs> you know, and it, like that would be really difficult. And I don't know, I don't understand how that, that would just be an absurd universe. You know, it's like, yeah. well, let's play a rolling game, a uh, role-playing game where everyone's jello. It's like, okay, I guess you could, <laughs> but so anyway, I just, I just in defense of what you're saying, like, it's, I don't, I don't, it's not that I love realism. It's that I love the tension between realism yes. and something else. And there's something Absolutely. else, is, of course, why we play these games to our degree. Nobody Absolutely. wants to just role play our shitty lives. (laughs) (laughs) 
you know? Well, that's, I mean, that's been a, a funny thing that I've been thinking about in Dance Macabre in terms of like, again, political economies and things like that. And, and to your point, you know, like in the, the setting that I've chosen for 14th century Europe, it's like, the vast majority of people were villains. They were peasants. They, you know, they didn't have money. They didn't have property completely abused, completely like, you know, lumpen proletariat, just fucking down in the mud every single day. And, you, you know, I think in fantasy, a lot of the like heroes that we think about tend to be akin to aristocracy or nobility or something like that, which is something that I really wanted to break away from. And so it's like, you know, in Dance Macabre, you, you are a, a, you are a villain. You, you aren't anything special really, which does kind of go to the Morkborg knave kind of idea where it's like, you're not a hero, you're just a person. But then, you know, like the thing that I've done in the rules that I'm writing is that the, the player character is called the, the supplicant, the last supplicant. Um, and the idea is that you've been kind of chosen for this duty to like find death in this deathless landscape. So it's, you know, like you, you are just a peasant. You're kind of nobody. You might like, there are backgrounds that you can have different professions, like smithing, farming, herbalism, things like that, like actual real world applicable skills. But at the same time, like, you, you know, finding that, that inroad to being like, oh, you can be a hero, even though you're, you're not nobility, you're not, you know, aristocracy. Which is also, I don't know, it's important to me to like, I don't know, find a way to fight the man, you know? <laughs> so it's like, just, you know, don't put people in the position where they exactly. already hold power. Right, right. That's something we both obviously align on is, is how, what are, what are narrative structures, mm-hmm. um, to use a term of art, you know, where, where that's the case, where you're somehow fighting power or refusing power or you have power, but you want to give it up or whatever, or you're rising, you know, yeah, you're, you're a villain and you, um, you must, you know, it bring the end of feudalism, right? And that's that's an interesting um, question inherently to me, and I think makes games inherently interesting. Yeah. And then you can layer on because I think of you know, Spire, you know, came out while I was still like I'd written Still Fleet, but hadn't really published it. And it's like, wow, okay, is you know, to, in my mind, it's like great minds think alike, right? It's like here's another game where, in a way, the whole thing is the narrative structure. Like the setting is cool, whatever, who cares? But yeah, the narrative structure you could you can put that anywhere. You know, you are part of the ministry and you are doing a Maoism, and the colonial oppressors control all of the magic and tech. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I love Grant how it's working. There's sky whales; it's great. The classes are interesting, but uh, but in a way, that's like I love a sky whale. Love a sky whale, but it's like epiphenomenal. You know what I mean to the the actual engine of the game, and I think that's mm-hmm. uh, to your point. It's and and that's and, and that's a, but I, I think we can go beyond like Merkborg is fun for a baseline sort of OSR game, but I think it doesn't have it lacks some of that narrative structure. Of like why are you doing anything? It's a it's a world yeah. with just no meaning, and I think while the world is our the real world is quite bleak it doesn't actually just completely lack meaning, you know, like mm-hmm. we can find stuff, like we can fight the man, you know, and, and whatever. Yeah. So I think that's, it's, it's partially about like injecting some measure of hope or like trying to create mm-hmm. the conditions for imagining hope, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. For dance macabre, it's like, it's, it's about a, a ascension and it's about finding that kind of hope. But then mm-hmm. it's also, um, I don't know. I've been, have you ever read um, Alfred Bester? You know no, that guy? I don't think so. He's great. Not hard sci-fi at all, but very fun. I, I would I would categorize him as like existentialist sci-fi. But he has this one book called The Stars My Destination, where basically there's this like semi-magical space material called pyre, um, which I think can be used as like an energy source. It's like a clean energy source kind of thing, but can also be incredibly destructive in the wrong hands. And at the end of the book, the main character 
finally gets his hands on this semi-magical space rock stuff. And then it just like leaves it with a question where it's like, okay, well, what do you do with that then? You know, it's like, and his kind of answer to that is like, I'm just going to give it to the people and let them do whatever they want with it. Like it should just be free to access. And I, I don't know. I think that that's an interesting narrative structure too, that I've been thinking a lot about with Dance Macabre, where it's like the, the kind of mechanical structure is that you're finding a MacGuffin, a Memento Mori item, uh, which can be like a saint's relic or can be a painting or what, like whatever the GM kind of wants. I have like some guidelines that I've laid out, but I'm not trying to like dictate necessarily what the MacGuffin item is. Um, it's the Holy Grail, right? It's that kind it's of the Holy thing. Grail. Yeah. It's a quest yeah. for the Grail. And then like, I think, you know, I, I also want to try to make it clear that it's like the player can either use it themselves and die and leave this fucked up world, or they can try to find a way to like gift it to other people or, you know, just like something like that. But I don't know, again, thinking about like structures of power within that, like once you, once you gain that MacGuffin, once you gain that unearthly power, what are you, what are you doing with it? No, I love it. And it's, it's replayable. So it's not, it's specific, but replayable, which I think is also something that, again, if you look at in parallel, you know, some of your work, uh, games like Spire, and then obviously Still Fleet, and, and our whole focus has been on this narrative structure of you're doing a job for the company, mm-hmm. you also hate the company, so you can it, it can go, there's a whole spectrum from you just do the job, to you refuse to do the job, to something in the middle where it's a campaign, which is kind of the intent, where you kind of over time begin malingering and lying and building your own yeah. base of power, subverting, or you know, you have you there's factions that arise, and that kind of narrative structure i think is fun because it drops you it drops the player into a very specific like you have a thing you need to do and so they mm-hmm. get interested in it just because that's players kind of want to be told to some degree like let me do something yeah um, it's, it's good to have a goal it's good to have a focus um, right. especially when you first start out right but then and then to your point it's like you can kind of be whatever the gm wants so really the 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 job could be like kind of a um let's say a less controversial like there's a evil space demon who's just killing people and you have to go fight it and so then you're yeah. just basically playing the indian space and that's fine yeah. or you can get you know it can be this hardcore like spy story about different kinds of leftist utopian thought and like what really should happen and resources and how they get distributed and i think like i love the idea of a kind of grail too i, I love object-based um stories because i think um especially frankly i think when the object really doesn't matter like when it's a yeah. really MacGuffin, it's the maltese yeah. and falcon <laughs> I think that's so fun because you as the GM to run them, you can make such a big deal out of this thing that the players are never going to get that doesn't mm-hmm. do anything that doesn't matter, except it matters. in as much as like, whatever you want to say politically or socially, like somebody wants it. Yes. Um, you know, there's something that's happening. And, and I think that's like a, um, a fun tension again, where you don't, you don't have to do a lot of prep or like worry about like magic item rules as much as create this, this feeling of like, yeah, guys, you, you really need that grail. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I want to play your game for this reason. I think it'd be really fun to do some, some, you know, play tests. No, I, I, I love MacGuffin items for the same reason where it's just, it can be utterly silly. It can be very impactful, but I mean, ultimately it's just a symbol about um, consolidation of power. I think, you know, where it's just like, who holds this thing that everybody wants? Why do they hold it? Um, how do you get your hands on it? Yeah, and there's any any number of ways of doing that. Well, so that's a that's a pretty good intro, I think, to some of the game design topics that we think about. 
what are some things you're excited to talk about the other game designers? Like, what are some of the reasons, young and why did we decide, okay, let's do this podcast? You know, even if it's just a mini series, let's, let's say, what, what is the goal? I mean, you know, I'm, I'm also outside of kind of the bigger picture stuff. I'm always a nerd for the more minute details and, and uh, I love mechanics. I love mechanics. I love thinking about the ways in which we can take these big picture ideas, but then distill them down into a playable die roll or even just like you know i think sometimes the best games are just role playing without much dice rolling um so like you know finding the ways that you kind of translate that is always super interesting to me yeah i think that's one of the main things that i'm pretty excited about is just uh just hearing about different people's design philosophy about yeah translating these kind of like bigger picture economies bigger picture worlds that they want to build out and how you again distill that down into legible playable fun mechanics because there's also a lot of games that have great ideas but become clunky mechanically or repetitive mechanically or you know just like it's not fun to play so right right i don't want to engage with it even if i like the concept even if i like the setting even if i like the potential characters that you can build out you know i mean like you know not not to talk too much shit on wizards but that's how i feel about dnd it's like even a fifth edition which yep. is supposed to be very streamlined it's there's too much. There's too much going on. Uh, and it doesn't feel that fun to me. Um, well, I like a lot of stuff going on, but I, I agree. Like in running it a few years ago, like during the height of COVID, it was like just apparent that because everything in the system is about combat, really, at the end of the day, there's really not yeah. a good way to do anything else. So you can roll a D20 all day for non-combat reasons, but you're always just rolling a D20, adding a small number, mm-hmm. and it gets more and more complicated. You could do a series of those. They have sort of they have sort of epi cycles they've added to the system to try to make it more about social dynamics and less about combat. But at the end of the day, it's a combat simulator. And it's, if you really want to do that, I guess it works, but like, I don't want to do that. And I think most adults kind of get bored because among many other reasons, um, I think there's so many reasons, there's political reasons we can go into, but I think one simple reason is video games do that better. And you know, things that role playing games do well, or they open up these other, ways that we can discuss kind of ourselves and and who we want to be and what we want the world to look like. And it just, the idea of just like fighting monsters to gain XP or gold or whatever is, is so dreadfully boring that I think it, that is a kind of automatic divide. I think in these discussions where it's like, if that's what you want to do, cool. There's many games that do that. Obviously the dragon game is out there and you could just play that and probably have fun. I guess I, I couldn't, but like people can, I get that. But I think on this podcast, yeah, I agree. I'm, I'm really interested in like, to your, just what you said. I thought you said, well, how do, other, how do game designers in general, so us and other people, how do we mechanicalize, you know, um, narrative structures? How do we mechanicalize political ideas, philosophical ideas, and make them engaging and genuinely fun mm-hmm. and not, you know, a chore or, or underthought or vague, you know, like how do we have detention in the dice rolls? Um, hence the name of the podcast, yeah. right? Why we roll. We're not just doing purely narrative, which again, not to knock that if that's your yeah. thing, but you know, I, I like, I like a good dice roll. Um, Always. So, I mean, yeah. I don't know, especially in terms of designing, there's something really nice about figuring out specific yeah. percentages and like really trying to like tweak and balance all of that. I don't know. I, I find that very satisfying. And even though I, I tend towards simpler systems for dice rolling, like I don't, I don't want to make people do too much math. You know, I think that's something that um, Yochai Gall has said often. Uh, he's the creator of Cairn, which is kind of a it's it's a Nave clone, but I think it it also it also takes some stuff from like Into the Odd, uh, like Chris McDowell's work. 
Um, but like, you know, that's something I remember him saying on Twitter pretty often where he's like, I don't like doing math that much. And I don't want my players to have to sit there and do arithmetic to figure out whether or not they've hit the monster that they're trying to hit or what, you know, whatever. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Always trying to find like simplified ways of doing that, that still have a lot of tension and a lot of, yeah, a lot of engagement in terms of, uh, how the players get into it. Yeah. And I think some of those, and, and there, I mean, I, I, I like having the, all the, you know, we have all these options available to us and it's, it's sort of like minim, maximalism or minimalism mm-hmm. in general. And that might be good also for the show is like, I, you know, I like that there's several perfect polyhedra or whatever, and we can use them all. There's also great games where you really just use a D six or a D 20 or whatever. And that's fine. Yeah. Um, I think some of it is to your point. It's like, like I like to think in Soul Fleet, it's it's pretty simple at the end of the day because while there are different dice types, you're generally just trying to get a six or higher, or you're rolling against someone. So like I, the GM has just rolled and got a whatever five, a seven, and whatever that's the number. You yeah. Can get. And because you know the math you're doing is very simple, you're rolling your dice and you're generally, you know, it's a gambling. The whole game is around a gambling mechanic. So you burn mm-hmm. your grit. You know, you can you can add points to your roll or not, but you only have so many points to add, and that that kind of economy while it is arithmetic, like it's based on constantly doing small amounts of math. It's not, right, it's right. never like too crazy. So I think there's a, there, there is a way to sort of have your cake and eat it. I think on the sort of maximalist side that still preserves that nice interaction you're describing in a way we could eventually work out this kind of typology of all these different systems. And, you know, the, I'm, I'm sure somebody's tried to write this up somewhere, but it, it'd be cool to work through sure, it. Like yeah. dice pools, uh, percentile, you know, just all kinds yeah. of stuff, cards. Like I think there's a lot of stuff out there that we're just be- we're just beginning as a community to really embrace like that, um, that diversity of mechanics, but also to your point, you know, Hey, let's make it not as crazy complicated <laughs> as yeah. traditionally the games have been. You know, one thing I think that still fleet does that really well, where it's thinking about, uh, the, the math, the applied math that players have to do in still fleet. It's, incremental whenever you're doing it. And I think that the gambling mechanic (laughs) ups the ante. It drives that tension forward, which I think makes the math that you're doing in those moments more enjoyable than, you know, maybe some other games that I could think of. And yeah, I mean, you know, I'm I'm a, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of percentile dice. I'm also a big fan of dice pools. I think that there's something really fun about them. You know, uh, Rick, Priestley, who is a tabletop wargaming designer. He's the guy that designed the original Warhammer, all of that kind of stuff. But yeah, I don't know. You know, Rick Priestley, he designed the original Warhammer. Um, I, I feel a big certain way about Games Workshop these days, but I, I, you know, I think that his work was really important in terms of tabletop wargaming hobby and stuff like that. I, to, to my knowledge, he hasn't done any role-playing game stuff, but I might be wrong about that. Uh, he has a great book called Tabletop War Games, which is literally just about designing oh, tabletop war games. I actually I have two copies, so if you want to borrow one or have one, I would love to borrow it. one. Yeah, um, um, I th- I think there's really a lot of insightful stuff that he has in there. And one of my big takeaways, because I used to play 40k, I used to play Warhammer Fantasy when I was much younger, before I really developed a political consciousness. Um, you know, like one of the big takeaways that I took from his book is he's just like throwing buckets of dice is fucking awesome. It feels <laughs> power. Like it feels good to have just like 30 D six in your hand and just to throw it on the table. And I don't think that that's really appropriate for tabletop role-playing games. Cause they, you know, again, like the, it takes up too much time and eats away a lot, but that is why I like dice pools a lot where it's like, I can literally count 
my character's attributes in my hand and then toss it, throw it, see the results um, relatively quickly. Yeah. I mean, that's again, that's something I'm doing in, in Dance Macabre. It's all yeah. uh, small dice pool based. You get a hit on a four plus, you get a miss on a one through a three. There's different modifiers that you can apply to that. But it basically just at a glance, you can be like, okay, I have three hits. I have four hits. You know? Right. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I, I have not liked pool games in a while. I'd also agree with, I played Warhammer uh, 40k and thought it was, um, you know, obviously there's, there's, there's some seductive elements to that universe and, and, so. and I loved the Skaven. So I always wanted to do 40k, but with giant rats, so I could be a rat, you know, with a laser. Um, I think, they, but I, I, I think they like um, mobilized, you know, obviously a lot of elements of like both parody of, right-wing government stuff but then also it just slides into you know non-parody that's, which is why yeah, we don't play it today yeah, but that's uh, the problem but like the dice stuff i remember not thinking was super fun i also didn't think it got in the way i mean it was pretty clear i thought it was smart given you had this whole ping pong like we put on a ping pong table like full of figurines yeah. and you had to manage them and so because it's all the same kind of dice you could put them near like i remember there's a physicality to it and i just haven't played games like that in a while like we stopped playing before the pandemic because most of my friends had kids so we really stopped yeah. playing around a table so i play all the time but it's almost always through discord so i do think for me that was a very influential in terms of my design practice just because it's like well i don't even play physical games so i'm not designing physical games i'm imagining that everything's theater of the mind or vtt and i'm on a screen which isn't good it's just like you know it became the backdrop That's of my cool. life even yeah, before it's, you know the pandemic um, there's not a there shouldn't be a value judgment attached to it it's just it is what it is it's just the medium that's most accessible at yeah. the moment and i mean it's i think that's an interesting question that we can pose to guests too it's like has that changed your praxis in terms of right how you're designing are you thinking more about vtt or are you thinking more about streaming or or are you still designing for the table you know, I don't really know what the implications of any of that is, but I, it is interesting to me. But I, I think I would never, and and I also should say, in terms of dice pool games, I love the White Wolf games, and that's what I played as a kid. Yeah, not more than D anD D, just because people wanted to play D anD D. So I played a lot of D anD D, but I also loved, and I always wanted to play kind of the extended world of darkness. So it was like mostly mm -hmm. vampires of the east, but you know, you could be werewolf, you could be whatever. Um, and that was pools of D10s, and it was relatively right. small numbers. We played a lot of Trinity, so obviously a sci-fi game. And that worked because, you know, almost the other, the opposite reason of you only needed a few D10s at a time per roll. So yeah, your sheet had all these different bubbles of D10s, but you only were rolling like three or four, seven maybe. Mm -hmm. um, and often not even, you know, you only had a couple. And so I think, you know, those games can work. I just, it's it's hard to imagine once I got really into like, okay, what can you do with, you know, the simplicity of you only, you know, you're rolling just a D12 or just a D8 or whatever, and kind of comparing those as opposed to saying you have to pick one. Mm -hmm. um, that's why I think for our studio, we are like, okay, that'll be the kind of mechanically the thing we explore. And it, and at the, you know, it's like, not only does it not seem like it's going to, we're not going to run out of juice anytime soon. It's kind of taken us 10 years to just get the one really good sci-fi version. Um, now I think it's a lot faster. We have like a couple fantasy versions coming out, but it's like, there's so much there. So I think, so I would imagine basically by, you know, analogy that there'd be so much if you're like, I do pools of mm -hmm. D6s or I do percentile, like you could kind of just always do versions of that and, you know, add twists. Um, yeah. I think one thing, you know, I'll, I, I think I can speak for Ethan here to say like, we both really shouldn't add in cards. And that brings us more into the physical. You can do it online, but it's so much more satisfying to flip mm -hmm. cards on a table. I love playing poker. That's something I do still do in person. So sorry, I'm just kind of rambling with mechanics, but I think like oh, no. 
when you have your thing, it's, as you said, it's not necessarily good or bad, but it is like each of them can be used in a kind of deep way. I do think, again, there are elements that are, that appeal more or less. Like to me, having more dice options is just inherently appealing. And I could mm-hmm. like, all I could, I can't really explain it other than to say like, I'm a maximalist in art, you know, I'm a maximalist <laughs> as a writer. And so obviously in terms of game design, that also is like, yeah, I want one of each of them. Yeah. Uh, Why wouldn't you? Yeah. Something, something I, I think about a lot too is, um, and I, you know, maybe this isn't really an issue anymore, especially with how the indie TTRPG community has been growing in the last several years. But I always think about like accessibility driving simplicity uh, so, you know, for Dance Macabre, it's all D6s. It's a D6 dice pool. You're maybe throwing three to six at a time, something like that. But yeah, I don't I don't know. That was something that I was thinking about a lot where it's like, you know, I could do D10s, I could do D20s, I could do D8s or whatever. But something that everybody has is definitely a D6. But then again, thinking about the audience that it's going out to, they probably have 20 or 30 sets of poly. Yeah, man. Dice. I mean, <laughs> I mean you know, I think, so it's kind of like, it's a little bit of a moot point, but still, I don't know. It's something, something that I like to think about. I think that's noble, but I think you can only make, um, so this came up in a different context that I, I can speak to you with Sylphie, but, but like for, for, again, for us, like we do so much, we're kind of discord focused and eventually we'll be mm-hmm. sort of alchemy focused, you know, fingers crossed that's, that's coming in September. Um, so I think, you know, for us, it's all there. It's like, you click a button and it happens. You don't even need, like, I have a bunch of physical dice. They just sit there collecting dust, right? Because yeah, yeah. why would I roll them in front of myself when I, it, it, it deprives the players of the genre. If I'm jamming a game of, they see my role and it's like, okay, now it's on you. What are you going to do? Like you can burn all your grit. You can use some crazy power. Mm-hmm. Um, but that aside, I also think there are real accessibility questions and that's a really good point. Um, but I think sometimes you do have to make the hard decisions. Like the one that I, that I'll mention for us was the redactions, like some, a few people, not many at all, but I mean, of hopefully around a thousand people play the game and like two people have been really kind of heated that our game has not just like strike through, but like text that is redacted. It's blacked out, <laughs> which is a joke. And it started literally as a design, a graphic design choice as a kind of joke about the nature of bureaucratic documents and secret right. keeping um, and kind of the capitalist, the sort of like um, technocratic class, right? The, the people who run Quantico and, you know, uh, <laughs> what, what, are, what are they like? And so it's almost like, okay, if the game is about them running this company in space, that's both really modern, but they found all these amazing ancient artifacts that are high tech. So it's this kind of weird mishmash of like genre. This will mm-hmm. be a way to cue the reader in visually right away that these are some yeah. assholes, right? However, yeah. some people have just been like, I really want to know what's under there. And it's like, it literally was originally just jokes. Now, of course, I do try to write little bomo, you know, of like, fun lore kind of things but it's nothing like mm. you literally can never read any of them and play the game and it works exactly the same you don't none of them are rules none of them matter um and you yeah. can find them all in the pdfs you just would open the pdf and like select the text and you can see it but that has annoyed a couple people to the point where they're like i'll never play your game i hate it and i'm like all right like fair enough that is an accessibility thing but we made a choice and we all like check in and we're like we're sticking by it like we think it's rad you know so like yeah. literally that is makes it less accessible but I kind of feel like in the day, in the age when most people have access to PDF readers for free, easily, like it's not that inaccessible, you know? Well, you're also know. not redacting anything that would change accessibility to play. That's kind of, that's, that's the thing that I'm tripping up on where it's like, I, I don't, I don't 
personally think that's an accessibility issue because it's 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 using graphic design to do world building or lore building right like that's right, right. that's kind of the point of it so it you know it's not like you're redacting rules or making <laughs> like limiting people's access to the game itself <laughs> but i mean you know one can make that i mean i could i can understand if your thing is like hey maybe i don't have great vision or i don't i'm not great at computers or it just takes it's yeah. a pain in the ass like there's a counter argument. It's just, that's, I guess my point is like, sometimes you do have to just say, well, we've done it this way and you can do it a different way if you want. There's other games that do different ways, but, and I think it's a spectrum because I think there could be, you could imagine a game where like to play the game, you have to buy a special object <laughs> that yeah. costs a hundred dollars. And in that case, will you play it? Will I play it? Probably not. We'll probably look at it and be like, yeah, cool but i don't really want to like in addition to the, like i'm saying like you buy the book and then you still have to buy something none of us own to, to your point about like yeah. tools um i guess that's how warhammer and i think also as you get older it's like oh yeah it looks fun but also do i really want to spend that money <laughs> um well and i mean we could get into a whole thing about games workshops pricing schemes and i mean there's like a whole mm-hmm. it's it is the biggest fucking scam <laughs> it's like <laughs> Like, I don't want to go like daytime radio host on this or anything, but like, it's a fucking scam. More uh, than Magic the Gathering or similar to? <laughs> I, would, I would say same, same, but different, maybe. Like, mm-hmm. you know, Magic yeah. in a lot of trading card games, TCGs tend to deal more in rarity than mm. Games Workshop does with its miniatures. But what Games Workshop does is they base pricing on in-game and I mean, this is kind of true for Magic, but I think there's a different economy happening with Magic or other TCGs at the same time, uh, where it's like, you know, you want to like collect the Charizard and whatever. Um, right, right, right. It's basically, it's pay to play with Warhammer, which of course it is, right? You have to buy the miniatures, you have to buy the paints, you have to do all that stuff. But then they they scale it up. And so like individual characters or units that are particularly powerful in whatever their current rule set or whatever their current um, update is, tend to be priced 10, 20, 30% higher than other units that you're going to end up buying. Right. And that's that's how you can get an individual plastic model that literally takes maybe two pence for Games Workshop to <laughs> manufacture because they own the molds, they own the company, or they, they manufacture everything in-house, right? So they have an incredibly streamlined production system. Maybe it takes two pence for them to produce this little plastic miniature that's about two to three inches tall uh, and they'll charge you 50 or 60 or 70 bucks for it based on the in-game stats and lore for it. Um, Crazy. So it's like, you know, if you want to have a competitive army, which I think most people that play that game do, like I, I know very few people that play 40 K casually. It's, it's, mm. it's really competitive scene. You gotta, you gotta fucking shell out for, you know, what materially amounts to, nothing um that's which I, is I'm not competitive so that's one reason ttrpg is always <laughs> yeah. <a favorite> like, <laughs> yeah i don't know, I want to explore or not you know same i mean i always loved i love tabletop wargaming stuff more for the hobby side of things frankly um like i like showing off painting i like doing the modeling and stuff like right, that right. i'm fucking bad at i'm bad at playing the game <laughs> i always lose <laughs> And after a while, it's like, well, I don't want to be in a tournament. I don't want to, you know, it's just embarrassing. Right. Outside of the, you know, problematic 
other you know myriad problematic stuff. Oh yeah, like but you could, but even right, and the, so you you can abstract out each of these kind of dimensions of game design. So you could say we could do leftist Warhammer, where it's you know whatever punk hammer, and it's completely different in that sense. <laughs> but it's still like it's your point about the real world economy being related to the diegetic kind of power and just like, okay, well, I still don't have the money. So even if I, yeah. and, and a lot of, I mean, that's, I mean, again, politics aside, I had, I've had fun at a few times playing Warhammer and it, in it, there are yeah. aspects of it that are fun. I also felt like, wow, I'm really bad at this. And this whatever is very arcane and, and people are arguing about like lines of sight a lot, but, <laughs> um, but I can imagine it being fun. And I think, so I will say like, um, I think this is Grant Howe. did a, a version called Grimlight where you're playing only small squads and it's yeah. all about kind of making mutants. So you're using the different pieces, the sort of cheapy pieces um, they produce to make your own kind of aliens or human, you know, far future humans with weird kind of tech. And then you're playing these little squads and that's meant to facilitate, I think, in addition to, well, it's a cool looking kind of way to, to run a war game. It's also like, you don't have to buy that much stuff and you're buying kind of scraps and making your own. So it sort of assumes you like super glue a lot. And to your, to your point, the hobby aspects, you like, you know, painting, making your little guys. Um, I, I also feel like I'm a little lazy and not that good at the art side, like uh, I'm a writer. So that's, it makes, it makes a lot of sense that to me, the very abstract, like mind stuff was always very appealing. Like, Oh, I can just write a scenario. And you imagine the dragon yeah. or whatever. That's it's on, on you. you. Yeah. That's on you. I don't know. I mean, I can theater of the mind. I can describe it beautifully, but like, I'm not in your head. You know, I don't. Know. I don't want to. I can't draw it. Um, there, there is a lot of uh, really cool indie uh, miniature miniatures agnostic war games out there mm, um, mm. that I I think do do a similar thing. Small squadron base, you know, all that kind of stuff. Much more accessible. That is out there. That might be interesting to talk to some of those designers. Yeah. As well. I would be totally down. And I would, again, I'd be really down to play a lot of this stuff. A lot of it is not, it's like, it's very funny. And I, and I, this might be, you know, a whole episode, your, your history, my history, like just as um, I'm guessing around the, you know, the same age, maybe coming up in some of the same worlds, but in different cities. And how do you arrive at like the kinds of games we like now versus, you yeah. know, all the, the other games out there, video games and, and CCGs and, and tabletop war games is, as you're mentioning, being kind of major competitors to just any version of, of TTRPGs. Mm -hmm. But I will say, you know, a lot of times in my life, it's not been a very conscious, it hasn't been like, I will never play this type of game again. It's more just like going toward what I liked and yeah. what my friends liked and how we could spend time together, you know, kind of pre them having kids pre pandemic. And now we're in a world where for my specific friend group, you know, that's cut off certain avenues, but then with running a kind of company, it's like opened up all, you know, just meeting amazing randos who are really great, who yeah. also have very specific times they can play and ways they can play. But I think this podcast can be an amazing resource for both of us to just try a bunch of stuff we wouldn't normally try and talk about it and give it like a very, like, I think we're on the same page about like, give it a real shot and don't, you know, don't hate on it. Just like, here's, here's what it is. Um, yeah. Which I think probably other podcasts do, but again, I, I don't know how many of them are are coming from a place of like I want to do this all day. This is all I do. <laughs> you know, kind of the click and clack <laughs> vibe we were talking about. So, uh, thanks for listening to Why We Roll. Why We Roll is a podcast about designing tabletop role playing games. Uh, I'm Wythe Marshall. I'm Chris Pickett. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Why We Roll. Our theme music is by the brilliant Sam Tyndall and Arpline. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on Twitch and what used to be Twitter at Why We Roll, and on Instagram at whyweroll.pod. 
You can find out more about Dance Macabre at timespaceplace.itch.io slash dance macabre. You can find out more about Stillfleet at stillfleet.com. Thanks for listening.